Hello, welcome to this chapter of Conversations About Cancer. Today, Shay and I explore my treatment. I was treated for testicular cancer in 1998. Um, we talk about the difficulties of a treatment like chemo. We talk about the importance of getting a second opinion and how hard that is and how important it is as well. And we talk about what it's like to get to the end of the treatment and find out if it worked or not. We hope you find this chapter uh, interesting and worthwhile. And now let's start our podcast. Hi, Rick. Hi, Shay. So tell me, remind me again. So set the stage. You're sitting in a okay, I'll sit hospital. The stage. Yeah, I'm, I've been in the hospital for about a week. And they uh, didn't know what type of cancer I had. They came with some very bad news. And then they came and said um, that we, good news, we know what it is. It's testicular cancer. And we're going to start treatment tomorrow. And that's where we are. And so when they said good news, you have cancer, did you see it as good news? I did see it as good news because they already told me I had cancer, but they didn't know what type. And when they didn't know what type, they wouldn't know how to treat it. And if they don't know how to treat it, then you, you probably aren't going to get better. Good luck to you. Yeah. Okay. So good news. We know what type of cancer you have. Yes. Okay. And so, and I have to, and we're going to start treating you right now. They're going to start treating me right now. And they did. So, uh, to, to refresh your memory, I was so sick, I could not walk, you know, I couldn't walk 15 feet. The tumor okay. had swelled up and, you know, my, my leg was, was numb. I, you know, I, 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 was, I was in very, very bad shape. And so it was good news that they were going to start the treatment. Um, in my particular case, the cancer was a rare presentation. So I had testicular cancer. There was no source tumor in either testes. And uh, because there was no source tumor there, that's part of, part of why it confused them. Um, uh, the, the tumor itself was very large in, in the abdomen. That, the pressure from that tumor was what was um, cutting off the vein in my leg and the nerves and, and all of that. So uh, when they started chemo, um, they started an aggressive chemo uh, treatment the, the very next day, or, or that very day. And, um, you know, the first... God, the first 24, 48 hours were, were really quite difficult, but, um, like, like physically difficult, physically difficult. Yeah. I was, I was vomiting every, you know, just, just continuously. Um, and, but after about two or three days, the chemo started having an effect on the tumor and it started to shrink. And, uh, um, so, so then, you know, I, I started feeling the benefits of the chemo in, in addition to all the, all the hardship of the chemo. Um, so when they, when they said, good news, we know what it is, and we can start treatment, was treat, so what, what was the, the package, the treatment options? It was chemo? Yeah, so that's a good question. So I, uh, they started with a standard protocol, which was called BEP, bleomycin, epistem, I think it's a pesticide. And, and platinum. Um, and that's a, that was a kind of a standard of care for time. Um, the problem with that treatment 
from a side effect standpoint is, uh, you know, chemo is toxic and different, different chemo has different side effects. In particular, the bleomycin was known to cause uh, damage to your lungs and, you know, scarring the lung t- tissues, which would have all kinds of downstream effects. Um, now, at the time, I couldn't, you know, I, I was nothing I could say. It was like, okay, you're, you know, you're going to die without the chemo. Let's start the chemo. Um, that got, that did start having an effect. But after I was re- released from the hospital, I think I was in the hospital for about about three weeks with this. So, so they started okay. the chemo, and I think I think it was a full, almost a full ten days uh, between when they started the chemo and when they let me out. Um, when I got out, I started looking for second opinions on things. So in particular, because I was a cyclist, I knew about, about the Lance Armstrong. I knew Lance Armstrong had a similar type of cancer. He had testicular cancer as well. So I got out and somehow found his, um, website and sent a, uh, email to that website and Lance himself, um, emailed me back. And then we went, back and forth on, on the, um, on what the treatment was being recommended. And at the time, what they recommended, because they couldn't figure out the source tumor, mm-hmm. they, they wanted to remove both testes. They wanted to give me radiation and then okay. they wanted to give me this three chemo drug. Um, so it would have been a pretty severe course of treatment with very long lasting side effects on the, on the, on the treatment. Um, the radiation causes, you know, scar tissue burns for that. Um, and then of course that removing both testes would impact my ability to make testosterone, which, you know, has a other set of effects. So fortunately they couldn't do the surgery because I, the, the tumor had uh, shut off the vein and given me blood clots. So I was on blood thinner. Oh, Okay. So because I was on blood thinner, they couldn't do the surgery. They couldn't execute me, on, the, on their proposed treatment plan. That's right. Not until I got off the, the blood thinner. Got so it. So it gave me, gave me some time, actually, to, to get that second opinion. Um, so I... I uh, and were you thinking, like, I, that this is the right plan for you? Or, or the, what drove you to want to get a second opinion? Um. I mean, it's so scary to get a cancer diagnosis, and it's so comforting to have someone say, this is the standard of care. Like, we know what to do. We've got this whole package, surgery, chemo, radiation. You know, I can see, you know, a, a, a reasonable person would be, you know, kind of taking that hook, line, and sinker and saying, okay, this is what I'm going to do, um, you know, and I'm not going to look back. So I'm just curious what, you know, what was your relationship with their recommendations, and how did you decide to even seek another, another perspective? Yeah, that's a, that's a real good question. And it's very common for people to not want to seek a second opinion because they're at a, they're at the doctor that found out what they had. The doctor's confident. I know what to do. And it does take, uh, it does take a lot of energy to abandon that course just for a minute to look to see if you're on the right course. Well, and just the psychologist in me is also just like, the idea of questioning the original recommendation introduces healthy but like terrifying uh, doubt. 
Like it, there's some false security in, you know, just trusting this wholeheartedly. <laughs> like if, if I question it, then I'm actually opening up my mind to the fact that maybe this isn't the right solution. And just that's, a, that's hard. That's really scary to do. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're, you're, you're right. You're raising a very good point. In terms of why I wanted a second opinion, I think uh, my nature is to be somewhat questioning. Mm-hmm, right? mm-hmm. And so maybe it's a little bit easier for me than it is for other people. Um, but also it's a, it's a pretty dramatic action to take. Okay. So if you're going so to go down this chemo path and the radiation path and the surgery path that they were recommending, it would have lifelong effects, mm-hmm. right? Totally. And and I just thought it was smart to make sure that this was the right path to go down. So I, I, I think it's a little bit of my nature that wants me to make sure I'm making a good decision. But you're absolutely right. It's a hard decision to make. And, and it's something that I would encourage every everyone listening to this podcast, that if, if they are in a position of, of uh, embarking on some pretty severe treatments for a pretty severe illness, they should take the time and the energy to make sure that that is the best path they can go down. Yeah, I mean, the, I, I'm resonating with that in that I also was given recommendations that I, that I could have swallowed hook, line, and sinker and didn't. And, you know, the consequence of that was time, right? I mean, it did also delay my care, um, and it introduced doubt in the treatment plan, which in my mind was brought us closer to reality. Like I, just because somebody has confidence doesn't mean they're right. Um, right. so I <laughs> wanted to be, um, you know, I'd rather have, um, ambiguity if that's reality rather than false confidence. But yeah. I can see when you're scared, how false confidence is more comfortable, <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you got a second, you, you, you reached out to Lance Armstrong of all people. Amazing. Um, and then, and you were saying, Hey, this is my, this is what they're recommending. Yes. And then like walk me through how that unfolded. Okay. So I, uh, I was lucky enough to get the the email address and sent, sent an email to, to Lance and said, this is what's going on. These are my symptoms. This is what they're recommending for treatment. Lance replied that this doesn't sound like the, a normal treatment plan. Um, and because he had been diagnosed with testicular cancer, I think six months, uh, six months to a year before me, he was further down that road and had more experience with how this particular type of cancer is treated. And so he said that he recommended that I see his doctor, uh, Dr. Craig Nichols, who was in Indiana at the time. And uh, uh, he actually called Craig and said, hey, please see Rick. So I called uh, Indiana University and to, to make an appointment with Craig. And uh, he said, and, and anyway, Craig got on the phone. We talked for about 20 minutes. And he said, bring out your, your lab results, bring out your slides, bring out your, you know, your CT scans. And, um, you know, get on the next plane you can. Wow. So, and I'm in the middle of chemo at the time. So I'm immunocompromised. Um, my wife and I got all the, 
all the uh, materials together and we booked a flight and we got on the plane and we had masks just like COVID. <laughs> we, were, we were the only people on the plane where I think I was the only person on the plane with a mask. But uh, uh, we, we flew out to see him. And so at this point you were in chemo and what was the chemo regimen? Was it um, oral or IV and how often were you getting it? Like what was, what was it like for you? Yeah. So, so this was, like I said, the BEP chemo, the, mm-hmm. the bleo, uh, epistem, uh, platinum, um, the bleo was a shot. Everything else was IV. So okay. I had two IV, two IV chemos and one, one injection of chemo. Um, it would go, there was four cycles and each cycle would be five days of IV and, and, um, and then three weeks later, I would have another five days of IV. I see. So, so at this point in time, I had gone through the first five days of IV. I had been released from the hospital and I was probably in week, week two, um, two or three of that first cycle. Okay. So I fly out there and I spent all day with, with Dr. Nichols. Um, they do their own ultrasounds and looked at the scans and looked at the lab results, uh, looked at everything. And he comes back and says, well, I've got some good news for you. Uh, he said, we don't have to remove both testes. We probably don't even have to remove one testes because it doesn't, you don't have a source tumor there. Your source tumor is, um, uh, up in the ingual canal, which is, I guess is the canal that your testes are formed inside and then they drop, drop through this canal. So your, your, the source tumor is up, up inside your abdomen. So removing the testes won't help. Uh, the other good news I have for you is radiation doesn't help with this type of cancer. So you don't need radiation. It won't do any good. It won't change the effectiveness of, of the, the, the outcome. Um, and with respect to the chemo drugs, you don't need all three chemo drugs. We're going to only give you epistamide uh, and, and the platinum. We're not going to give you bleomycin because that is going to scar your lungs. And uh, so we're, we're going we're gonna to change the treatment protocol. You've only had that one round of bleomycin, and hopefully your lungs won't be damaged too bad with just that one round. So I was kind of blown away with respect to the, the difference in the treatment um, recommendation, and I was happy with the, with the news that he gave me. So, so you, you were basically being like severely overtreated. Yes, I was being severely overtreated. And, That's right. and what's your kind of understanding of the huge discrepancy? Like how can there be such a difference of if there is a standard of care where, um, you know, at the same time, this, in the same country, with people theoretically with the same access to the same research, how can we have such different standards of care that get recommended for the same patient? Yeah, that, that's a real good question. So to remind everybody, I was being treated at Stanford. So you, that's a good, good, good facility. You would expect them to have, have a lot of uh, uh, you know, best-in-class knowledge of how to treat these things at the time. Why is it so different over there at Indiana? And the answer on that is, is, is twofold. Number one is I had a relatively rare type of cancer. So in my, m- much like you, yeah. you had a rare type of cancer too. Right. So, so in my case, 
roughly 1% of the of testicular cancer is the type I had that does not have a source tumor in either testes. And so testicular cancer is kind of rare anyway. Um, most doctors, most oncologists around the country probably only see, you know, two or three cases a, a year. And uh, if 99% of those cases are are all the same, then they're going to see the same type of case all the time. Right. Um, Indiana happened to be a center of excellence for this type of cancer. So they see more cases and they have more expertise. That makes sense. So, so they knew enough to say, wait, for this type of cancer, uh, we know how to treat it. Whereas in, in Stanford, in Stanford's case, because it was rare enough, they weren't exactly sure, so they wanted to they wanted to overtreat it, as you said. Well, and it sounds like they were lumping you in with a lot the larger subcategory of just t- testicular cancer in general. That's right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I'm, I was in a yes. similar boat. Yeah, 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 that's right. But now I'm in a I'm in a position where I've got two doctors giving me different treatment plans. Right, right. And you don't live in Indiana. So, and I don't live in Indiana. So. I came back to Stanford and talked to my Stanford doctor and said, good news. This is what the Indiana testicular cancer expert said. And he said, well, that's just not going to work because, you know, you're going to be back here in a couple of years. It's not going to, it's not going to cure you. Um, so you can do it if you want, but you know, you're, you're just, you know, it's not going to work. So then my wife and I, uh, she was there to hear that, and, she, and you know we, we had we had to figure out how to decide what to do. Yeah, how do you decide what to do? Yeah, so in that case, I got a third opinion. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so i i found I found another doctor uh, that was also uh, Doctor Einhorn, who who was also at Indiana, um, and so he also is a testicular cancer expert. And I asked him uh, his opinion. He reviewed everything, and he. Uh, concurred with what Dr. Nichols said, and we went forward with that treatment plan. Um, it's so hard to know happened. how much to tease out, you know, whether or not your opinion of you know, your own perspective is just how could it not be like influenced by what we want to be true? <laughs> That's right. It's it's very very true. Yeah, you've got to somehow get out of your own desires. And and uh, make the decision as 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 independently as you can. But you're absolutely right. Yeah, I I tried really hard to divorce myself from that, and I I knew in my heart that I wasn't doing it. You know mm-hmm. that I was just still influenced by you know kind of magical thinking. Like I want this to be true, so therefore this is the path I'm going to take. It's a really hard. Yeah. It's a really hard place to be. So it, it is a really hard place to be. So you yeah. ultimately decided after the third, uh, your third opinion to follow Dr. Nichols' advice, which would be to continue with chemo, but only two of the three drugs. That's correct. And for, yeah. and for how and long? So uh, he, he changed the, the recipe a little bit. So it's just those two drugs. Um, I think he changed the concentration and, and maybe changed the frequency of the drugs. Okay. Um, so 
but it would be another three rounds. So I did the, my first round. I, I would have three more rounds to go. Um, and the next hard part was coming back you know, to my Stanford doctor and say, well, we don't really care what you want to do. Uh, we are going to follow the treatment plan from, um, from Indiana, from Dr. Nichols. We would like you to implement it. And he said he would, um, and he, you know, still didn't think it was a good idea, but he said he would, but this, you know, this sort of raised some other problems and, and it highlights the importance of having, having an advocate for you as a patient. And my wife was my advocate, um, she was there, you know, all the time, making sure that, that things were on track. And as you know, at least I, I think this was probably a similar experience for you. Each chemo, each chemo round is cumulative. Right. And so the second one is harder than the first. The third one is harder than the second. Um, and, and the fourth is, was the hardest of all, at least for me. When I was in my third round, um, the, the white blood cell count goes down. The red blood cell count goes down, you know, all, all your body is taking a toll. And, uh, they had checked my, my, my red cells and said, well, you need to get a transfusion. Oh. And, and, uh, I'm like, okay, well, my wife checked with Dr. Nichols and said, okay, they want to give him a transfusion because this is what his blood is at. And he's like, absolutely not. Do not give him a transfusion. Now, this was at the time in, uh, this was in the, in the nineties. And it turns out that AIDS in blood and hepatitis in blood was a, was a problem. Oh my goodness. And, and you had, um, it, it was, it was below 10%, but it was above 1% a chance of getting a very, very serious disease from a blood transfusion. So, uh, he was like, absolutely not. And so I, I ended up getting one pint of blood, um, before we had asked Dr. Nichols. And then we cut that off on, on that. Another thing that came along in that treatment was one time my white count was so low, they sent me home. And said, now we'll, we'll do chemo, you know, the next day or the day after. And, and, uh, my wife checked with Dr. Nichols and he said, absolutely not. Because if you put a delay in time in there, if you, you're changing the, the chemo regime and it will not be as effective if you change the regime. So even a one day delay really? would, would impact the, the effectiveness of the, of the treatment. That's right. So it's. You know, it's so important to have someone that can stand, sit on top of this and, and make sure that what is happening is supposed to happen, especially if you're in a situation where you're being treated at one place, but the expertise is really in someplace else. Right. And were they willing to, I mean, was it hard for them to feel, I don't know, second guessed by a provider that's, you know, I mean, I'd imagine. You know, I'm, I'm sure it was hard for them and. It, you know, it, it comes back to, you're the only, you're the one that gets to live with the treatment, right? Completely. And so you, you just got to own it. You have to own I, it. And I, yes. you can't I, I completely agree. And we should probably have a whole nother episode of this podcast on th- that whole thing of, I remember I had a doctor ask me, 
I was getting an, an, an opinion from a doctor and, you know, I had seen a, a bunch of different specialists because, again, it's so rare and I wanted different people's perspectives. And, of course, you know, they wanted to understand who, you know, basically, who, who have you seen, what have they recommended, but also, like, who's treating you? And so one of the doctors asked me, well, you know, who, who's the quarterback, you know, to use it? Yeah. And I started to answer which doctor was the quarterback, and I stopped myself, and I'm like, no, I am. I am. I'm the quarterback. Yeah. I'm calling the shots. Yeah. This is my life. I appreciate that you're an expert, but no one cares about this more than me, and no one is affected by these, these decisions more than me. I'm in charge. But yep. that was just an interesting, you know, this, I think, for whatever, you know, very understandable reasons, the way we're structured, we have kind of created this dynamic where we're not in charge of our treatment in so many places. And so it can feel very um, disorienting or challenging to, you know, the system when all of a sudden we're calling the shots rather than the people in the white lab coats. Yeah, absolutely right. And and it's important. You've got to you've got to own it. Cause if you don't own it, you know, you, you, you're going to live with somebody else's outcome. Well put, well put. And I do, I yep. worry about all, you know, all the people whose personalities or their cultures or for all the very legitimate reasons have deference to authority. And what, like, I don't have deference to authority and I consider myself alive and well because of it. <laughs> um, right. And, you know, yeah. I wonder if, if I hadn't, you know, if I haven't been so comfortable taking charge um, and questioning um, what what yeah. the outcome would have been for me. Okay, right. so walk me through. Yeah, so, no. so you had to have transfusions. You str- like so chemo is no joke. It's a, it's not a walk in the park. Sounds like yeah, you got super sick. No I did get super sick. Yeah, I mean, I, I, honestly, for me, um, yeah, it, it was really really hard. Yeah, the chemo was very, very hard, especially that third and fourth set of rounds. Um, you know, you lose lose hair, which is not a big deal, but you kind of look sure. funny uh, if you're used to having hair. Um, you lose taste, you lose appetite, um, you lose immunity, you know, you, you lose tissues, you, you can't eat. I mean, all, all that stuff. It was just very, very hard. Um, and, and, you know, it was hard enough where, where it really tested me of, do I want to just keep doing it? Really? I mean, it was that hard. It was that hard. And I'm, I'm relatively strong. You're a, you're a cyclist. You like to suffer. I like to suffer, but not like this. It was hard. (laughs) Um, but you know, and it was probably a challenge for my wife too, because she wanted she didn't want to see me suffering, but she did want me to get better, right? And it really did take everybody around to help keep me on track. I was lucky enough to have my 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 kids were, I think, seven and five at the time. They were young. Um, my my parents came down to help um, take care of the kids while my wife was taking care of me. Um, and then they would go home, and Cheryl's mother would come to help take care of things while, while Cheryl was taking care of me. It really did take all of all the whole family, all the whole extended family to, to get me through it. Um, we, nausea was a mm-hmm. big deal. And I remember, I mean, they gave me some anti-nausea medication, but it was pills. 
And so, you know, you take the pill and then you throw up the anti-nausea medication and then it was, you know, how, how do you, you know, how do you yeah, deal with that? Yeah, similar thing. I did, uh, yeah, I did end up using some um, marijuana at the time because you could smoke that instead of, you couldn't throw up the smoke, right? And so that did provide some some comfort and relief on that. Um, but that was just totally bizarre too. I mean, like I smoked pot in college, but, you know, here I was in my forties and, you know, father, and, and it was before marijuana was legal. Uh, it, it just, it was just felt. So yeah. You had to find, you had to find a dealer in your forties. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I had some friend, some friend that, uh, got me hooked up with some dealer. And anyway, that's, that's kind of what we did. So in a given cycle, so a cycle was every three weeks or four weeks. It was every three and weeks. And how many of those days yeah. were you just gnarly sick? Um, the first week okay. was hell. Just hell. Um, the second week was getting better. The third week I felt pretty good. And so I, I learned to manage my calories through oh, the cycle. Okay. So because like the first week I just couldn't keep anything down. I was drinking Ensure to get some calories and sometimes it would stay down. Sometimes it wouldn't. You know, second week, uh, I could start to keep things down. The third week, I mean, like, I was eating pies, you know, anything I could get that third week um, because I knew that I would need it. You're like a bear going into Uh, hibernation. You knew you are going to, yeah. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And then, so did you get the chemo dread? I get the chemo dread. Like, the days leading up to the next cycle starting, just, like, anticipating, like, oh, God. I, I really yes. don't want to do this again. <laughs> yes, I did get the chemo dread, and you described it, yeah, very perfectly. Yeah, um, yeah, I did get that. And and I, I did IVs. I did not get a port. Did I did port not or? get a port, and I have a, I'm two minds about it. Um, it it really messed with my veins. Um, and like psychologically not having a port made me feel more normal. So if I were to do it again or give someone recommendation, I don't actually know what I would recommend. Yeah. I, uh, <laughs> I did not have a port either. I started it with really good veins. <laughs> I ended with not good veins. Um, and actually I, I'm noticing now, I, I think, I think at one of the places on my skin where they had put in some IVs, I think i I think I may have a skin cancer thing there. I need to go yeah, get that checked. Yeah, you check. should probably check that one out. And my guess is it's a direct result of the mm-hmm. of the uh, the chemo there. But it, I, I asked that because like it used to be like no deal for no no big deal to get blood drawn or or get a thing there. And then I would just so dread having them stick a needle in again. Right? You get so many needles in. The, well, in the I'm process. still getting needles. I mean, just in, in terms of surveillance. So I'm getting. I'm really figuring out who my favorite phlebotomists are in the world because some people. Well, I, I, if you need to know that, it's a good thing <laughs> oh, to know. Oh, I have my go-tos. I'm learning. And so, wait, I'm curious because yeah. you had physical symptoms of your tumor. So you, like, couldn't walk and you were in a lot of pain. And within, it sounds like, a couple of days of starting chemo, the tumor started shrinking and you could actually feel it. That's Yeah, that's right. That's right. It happened very, very quickly. I mean... Uh, and that's one of the nice things about testicular cancer. There are a set of cancers where chemo is very effective. Testicular cancer is one of them. And it 
was really surprising how quickly it started that tumor shrinking. Um, it was, it was literally a matter of days that in my legs swelling had stopped and, and, and all of a sudden I could, I had a lot less. So when you're going through chemo, you're getting this somewhat of a feedback loop, like it's working. Yeah. Especially early on. Um, so early on I got a real strong feedback that it was working. Yeah, I absolutely did. Later on, you know, the, the, the tumor had already shrunk. You don't know that it's working, but you know that it used to work. Um, that provides some mental, you know, help. to. Because that was going. my next question. Yeah. As miserable as you were and as much as you were, like, questioning, do I still want to do this? Like, did you have confidence that what you were doing was having an impact and, like, moving the needle that you needed it to move? Yeah, I, I did. And ultimately, the way I got that confidence was... You know, I knew the initial success, it was, it was shrinking it and just faith in my doctors that they knew what the hell they were talking yeah. about. Right. And so if they say I got to do it, then uh, these doctors, I believe they knew what they were talking about. That so, should be the name of this episode. Uh, faith in the doctors, uh, right? I mean, faith. yeah, it's, the, it's so. that yeah. faith thing around the science. Yeah, it is. It is. So uh, I had a, uh, my treatment went from June or from March to June. And my wife and I said, let's have a, uh, let's have something to look forward to at the end of this. Regardless of how it turns out, we're going to, you know, go have a vacation. And so we planned a trip to Hawaii. um, And at the end of my treatment, I still remember this. This was, this was quite emotional. I'm not sure if you had a, a similar experience or not. But um, we went through the whole round of treatment. And then I went back to Indiana. And Dr. Nichols had a uh, – I, I was part of a clinical, stru- uh, clinical trial study there where they wanted to find out the effectiveness of, uh, of a new diagnostic technique called a PET scan. So a PET scan is positron – emission tomography and it's like a cat scan except it uses antimatter it's like star trek right um and so they would inject you with glucose that would have a uh, uh you know radioactive mm-hmm. decay and then in that in that decay it would send off a positron and the theory on that is that glucose is a sugar it gets eaten up by metabolically active tissue and there's nothing quite as metabolically active as a, as a tumor. And so uh, they, if there was a live tumor, then the glucose would go there and it would you know, light up bright. If there was not a live tumor, then you wouldn't, see a, you wouldn't see a spot. And so I went out there, um, do this, this scan, waiting for the results. And you know, there, I've just got such high tension. Um, just high tension. And Dr. Nichols comes out and says, well, good news. You are cancer free. You're cured. And I mean, it, it even gives me chills right now when I think about it, uh, even though it was 20 years ago, it, it was just such a, such a magical couple words. You are cured. Right. And, uh, I just, I just went limp like a rag doll after that. It, you know, there was so much energy to get in, in for that scan. And then uh, to hear those words that, 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 that 
there was no cancer. It was like, it was like, wow. So, wow. And you kind of almost like the, you've been holding your breath for four months and you can finally just let it go. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Going into the chemo, they said I had a, a 70% chance that the chemo would, okay. would cure it. Right. Which, you know, 70 is pretty good. But it's no, not a hundred. It's decidedly right? not a hundred. <laughs> it's not a hundred. So um, having that clean bill of health at the end of that scan was was. So was remind great. me of the timeline. When was the hospitalization, and then when was the the PET scan? Like how how long was this story or this chapter of the story? Yeah. Um, well, the the story began with mountain biking in Moab mm-hmm. in November. <laughs> Or, or October. It was mountain biking in October. In November, I felt like something wasn't right. They diagnosed me with a hernia. They did hernia surgery in, in uh, I think, beginning of December. And then in February, the end of February is where they were like, you know, this, is, this isn't a hernia. It's cancer. And then they started the chemo at the beginning of March. And the end of chemo was at the and you know, towards the end of June. And I know you went, I know you went to Hawaii because I've seen a photo of you on the beach without hair and your cute family yeah. when they were so little. Yeah. They're not little anymore. Yeah. What not do you, little anymore. I'm going to use that, that. I was thinking of using that picture for our graphic I think that for would our be podcast. Perfect. What yeah. do you remember from that trip? Um, I remember being real thankful. Right. Um, yeah, I remember being very appreciative that I was going to be able to do this trip and hopefully more trips. And, and uh, that feeling of you can't take any day for granted and just how lucky you know, I was to be able to have more days. That's, that's what I remember the most. I remember um, um, having some having some pretty good talks with people because it was pretty obvious that, you know, that, that I was on chemo. Um, and some people would, would talk to me about it and I was happy to share my story. Um, cause it, it was a pretty good story. It certainly has a good ending. It does. Yeah. Well, you know, and, and, and it's, it, it I, I think, I think good stories often involve a lot of difficulty too. Right. They don't have to, but a lot of times they do, just like you, right? You had sure a lot did. of difficulty in in yours, and uh, it it make it makes it a good story. So too. I'm curious now that you know it's been 20 years. You know, if if somebody somebody was to go to Stanford today with the same diagnosis, what would their standard of care be? Has the world evolved? Yeah, that's yeah, that's a good question. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Um, I, I don't know if they would have similar a similar experience to mine or not, but I think you should always assume that um, while the doctor has the best intentions at heart, that there might be things that they don't know. I think it's always good to get a second opinion and, and, and try to get the best advice. Well, and, and, and my only thing that I would add to that is I agree and I I got seven second opinions, so I don't think you could call them second opinions when they're, you know, number six and seven. When they're, when they're, right, when there's um, seven of them, yeah. But I'm learning so much about 
um, I found a, maybe I've told you this already, but um, I found a Facebook group of other people with the same rare cancer, and I'm learning more about recurrence rates and treatment options and responses from them because by definition, any data that's published is 10 years old and, um, and not everyone's that's getting treatment is involved in some kind of research. So, I mean, no one's researching me right now. So <laughs> how does, right. you know, how do people learn from my experience? You know, it's, I know that it's not getting captured. So yes, I think everyone has the best of intentions, but they only know what they know. And so how do you take it upon yourself to gather different information, different perspectives so that you can make, you know, a a picture from all of those different perspectives that has as many dimensions as possible so that you can make a decision that works best for you. Yeah, that's a very, very good point. I had a a similar resource for testicular cancer. Uh, the testicular cancer research center. We should put links to this on our, on our, on our site when we publish it. Um, and I think there's a lot of those type of, uh, cancer patient groups and you're right. There's a wealth of information there, um, both with respect to figuring out what treatments, you know, make sense, but also, you know, um, like you said, recurrence rates and things like that, uh, that it's a different perspective from the patient than from the provider. Right. right? I mean, and, and none of them are more valid than others. They just come from a different perspective. Yeah, exactly true. So I, uh, uh, I also went through a lot of surveillance, like you're currently in surveillance. I had five years of surveillance. Um, we could talk about that now, or we've, we're hitting 41 minutes, and we could talk about that in our next, why don't we, in our yeah, next one. Why don't we talk about that in our next one, and then we can um, yeah, think a little bit more. I'm sure I have more questions, too, but that I can't think of at the moment. All right. Well, that sounds good. We should, well, okay. Let's end this one here, and then can't we'll wait. be ready for the next one.